Hey, it's Julie Pilot, and thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Idea Fountain, Life-Changing Conversations. I once got an invitation that said, dress code, dress as you would like to be known. And it didn't say much else except for the date and time of the party. That was the invitation to one of the most fun and magical dinner parties I've ever attended. Thrown by John Levy, creator of the Influencer Dinner Series, he set off a chain reaction of me trying something new, meeting new people, and eventually even getting a secret Santa Che Wong, the CEO of Box, who happened to be my last Idea Fountain guest. John Levy is a behavioral scientist, and he has a new book. You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, dropping on May 11th. In this episode, find out how your influence and connections could change everything. This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. of the Idea Fountain. Today, we're talking to John Levy, who is a behavioral scientist and has a brand new book coming out. I already pre-ordered it. It's You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. Uh, Before we dive in, as always, the Idea Fountain is a fireside chat. We have an incredible group of people here today. I'm so energized by every single person in the room. I know this is going to be a great conversation. I almost feel like we're having our own little influencer dinner here except for I know these people. Um, so really quick, just to bring everybody in to the room, on a count of the three, will everybody unmute and just say, hi, John, real quick, okay? One, two, three. Hi, hi John. John. Hi. Okay, 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 okay. John, before we talk about what I say is really probably one of the most magical and fun dinner parties I ever attended mm-hmm. that just happened to be alongside Olympic athletes, tech bosses, um, championship video gamers on YouTube and stars of TV shows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into that, I, I wanna level set on the term influence because mm-hmm. I know that it's important, uh, your book, again, you're invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence, but I know to a lot of people, due to social media and people trying to obtain influence by what can seem as inauthenticity, uh, the word influence and influencer can sometimes have a bad rep. Um, so can we just level set, you do an influencer dinner on the term? Oh, for sure. So for starters, I used the word influencer back in, I think, 2009 before social media was a thing, right? I think like Facebook had just started or something like that. Um, and when I looked at it, I looked at it from a scientific perspective. So something that has an impact on a person or an outcome. And so when I look at an influencer, I don't mean somebody who looks great in a bikini eating avocado toast. I mean, that's fine. I'm very happy that they've been able to find a career. What I'm looking at is people who have an ability to impact an industry 
through their thought leadership, position, or previous success. So if you're a professor researching something, you have a lot of thought leadership. You can really have an impact on an industry, even if you've never worked in it. Similarly, if you're the CEO, CMO, or whatever, CFO of a company, you have industry respect, generally, within, depending on the level and the company and so on. And then if you have previous success, like, listen, if you sold DoubleClick, you never have to be doing anything else. You have my respect. Like, that's an incredible feat. And so, or if you've won an Academy Award or an Olympic medal, you're golden, right? Like, I don't, you don't need to prove anything else to me. And so when I talk about influencer or influence, it's really that. It's the people that are, have industry respect or have an ability to impact it. So I was going on a hike with my friend, Michelle Lavin, and we were talking about just interesting things that are, that were happening in our life. And she said, I have somebody that you absolutely have to meet. He's going to invite you to a dinner and trust me, just go. And that's pretty much all I got. Uh -huh. Will you explain how your dinners come together and what happens? For sure. So I will start off by saying that this is the exact opposite of probably every other dinner involving influential people you have ever heard of. Absolutely. So we have really basic rules. Uh, and the storyline would be Julie gets, if she wasn't introduced to me through Michelle, she would get a random email completely unprovoked from uh, Cody, my head of communications. And it would say, you're cordially invited to participate in a secret dining experience essentially with a bunch of fancy people, but there's a catch. You are not allowed to talk about what you do or even give your last name. You cook dinner together. And when you sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And they find out that it's, as you said, Olympians, Nobel laureates, editors and chiefs, the occasional member of royalty, like just kind of crazy, wacky folk. And I've hosted 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. And before COVID, I was doing five dinners a month and uh, across New York, LA, San Francisco, and Seattle. And so, I can imagine it never gets old, right? That's uh, the, the meal absolutely gets old. I've stopped eating at the dinners. I mean, listen, I just, let's be very, very honest about this. Every <laughs> single person who comes to this dinner could afford a better meal. Chipotle <laughs> is a better meal. That, that's what I love about it, right? We went to a house that was large, but not super fancy, right? Like, I think the house that I had my dinner at, the people were new parents. And, mm. uh, and then we arrived and mingled. But again, you couldn't say what you could do. You couldn't talk about work and you couldn't say your last name. Um, and then we went into the other room and we all made dinner together. I am not the best cook. So we only made burritos, which actually was right in my comfort zone. Uh, there were, you know, maybe six, there were maybe 12 people there, six stations, people that thought they were good cooks, got to be in charge of a station. And then the other people rotated and uh, we got to get to know each other a little bit. And then. Uh, and then when we sit down to eat, we play a guessing game. So we go in a circle and everybody will try and guess what Julie does professionally. And then there's this big reveal and they find out how awesome she is and all the incredible things she's accomplished. And the rule is you have to 
brag about yourself the way that a Jewish mother would talk about her children, right? Like, but you got to do it because the fact is, I don't even know who's at the dinners because I like it as a surprise. So you don't know either. Cody just confirms it. Uh, in the early days, I knew. Uh, in the past few years, uh, Cody just handles all of it, and then I get to be surprised and actually. And oh, by the way, my guesses are by far the most ridiculous. I have a rule that I never reuse a guess, so I have to come up with just the strangest stuff after two thousand guests. It's like, oh, you invented, uh, you know, uh, tobacco tasting chewing gum for those people, you know, like whatever it is. I just come up with strange stuff, uh, and. Uh, and then what happens is that the relationships that are formed at those dinners, we connect everybody and then we invite them back for future events. So we host uh, these salons where usually it's about like 60 max, about a hundred people. And we surprise everybody with three speakers, but nobody knows who's presenting. And it could be anybody from Bill Nye, the science guy to when the roots performing or something like that. So uh, going back to the dinner, there, there were a couple of funny things that happened. One for me, and this, this has to do with influence. And I, I hesitated to tell this story because um, I didn't want to use a specific name. And it also confirms I have my own biases. But then I thought about it and have decided it's fine. So uh, we were going around and we were cooking dinner. And there was a lady who did not like how I was chopping the onions. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. She did not seem very friendly. She was mildly annoyed. I was dressed a little casual. She was formal. We were oil and water. Oh my God. I think I know who you're about to say. Okay. And so we sit down at the dinner. And as John said, you know, the first thing I did was look to my left and I needed to try to guess what that person did for a living. And then the next person guessed, the next person guessed. We went all the way around the room and then the person revealed what they did. When it got time to the woman, I said, she definitely leads a financial institution. And it turned out it was the lead actress from CSI, Marg. Oh, what's her last name? I yes, that's right. Is that who you were thinking? No, no. I was thinking a very, very senior executive at an entertainment company. No, and I'm not I, going to say. I, that, person, that person and I connected, but the, the actress and I didn't. And it was so funny because it made me realize how much reverse judgment I have. Mm -hmm. If somebody seems very formal, or corporate or professional, right? I, I get my own stories in the head. I thought she was running Wells Fargo, but it also made me realize that you never, you know, this is a cliche, but you never know what a person's going through. And mm -hmm. I started thinking about it and I thought, it's probably not very often that she's in a situation by herself that nobody knows who she is, right? Mm. She has been a top actress on a TV show for 20 plus years. So yeah. she may have been outside of her comfort zone and there may have been a little bit of a wall up. Yeah, it's one of these interesting things. I pretty consistently get emails from people that are wildly successful, that are essentially saying, this sounds amazing. I just deal with such high levels of social anxiety. I have no idea if I could handle being with 12 strangers. And mm -hmm. so I end up getting on, you know, Zoom or a call with them and trying to become a little bit closer with them and develop a sense of trust. But literally, like 
wildly successful, very prominent people, even pop, uh, famous actors and actresses. I've heard things like, I feel absolutely comfortable being any character but me. And wow. so it's, it's interesting. Uh, people are, are sometimes exactly how you'd expect them to be. And then sometimes they're completely not. One of my favorite stories is uh, we had a, a, a woman rather tall um, who was making guacamole with a, a black gentleman who was, you know, about six, six, one. And the entire time uh, she was, they were chatting, they were talking about her division three basketball career, right? And then she went into media and it came time to the, to the guessing portion and everybody was guessing what this gentleman did professionally and people like a oh, business executive. He seemed very like proper and buttoned up. He wasn't drinking or anything like that. Uh, and eventually he said, oh, I've been going by my middle name but my full name is Isaiah Thomas. And uh, what I'm best known for is being a 12 time NBA all-star. Uh, and now I have these companies and businesses. And, uh, and she literally takes her napkin. She's sitting right next to him hides under it and she goes, Isaiah Ethan Thomas. I was bragging <laughs> about my division three career to Isaiah Thomas. But it, it's kind of this perfect example of like, there, we make these assumptions and then we're completely off. And in general, the reason that I wanted people to not talk about their career was to reduce the amount of assumptions or preconceived notions. So you can be you rather than being your title. What other trends have you seen from all these dinners? Oh, wow. Um, oh, here's an interesting thing. The places that I, or the people that I thought would be the most impactful that I'd meet for my career were never the ones that I expected. It was consistently like this, you know, random events producer who produces like wildly huge events. who's just like a super connector and is like, you need to meet these people and introduces me to five people right. or like the makeup executive who I just love chatting with and get lost in conversation with for hours or, but not like, Oh my God, you know, I love Apple. Let's get somebody from Apple to come. Now maybe I'll get to do business with them. That stuff never seems to work out the way I expected to. And that's not why you were invited just to be clear. Julie. Yeah. Well, um, and you talk a little bit in your book on the difference between making connections and networking. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Networking sucks. Like quite literally. And, and I want you to like, as you're listening to this, think about when I say the word networking, what is the emotional relationship you have to it? Just and from, yeah, literally like it's cringeworthy. It is so awful. Uh, Francesca Gino and a team of researchers looked at the underlying emotional association to networking and people felt the need to clean themselves. Mm. And the reason is that it's, and I joke about this in the book, that it's like the hunger games, but the odds are worse. So if you walk into an event with a hundred people, there may be two or three people who would be even potentially interesting for a career standpoint, which means that you have to rush through as many people as possible to find the one or two or three or however many, that those odds are literally worse than the Hunger Games. And so the key is to realize that nobody wants to network. What we actually want is to make friends. And so the question then becomes, 
instead of doing networking events, how do we create experiences that allow us to become friends? Right. That allow us to have like a deeper and more meaningful relationship. Because I don't want to just be like, oh, Julie's awesome because she holds a title. I want to know about like what she's up to and like all the cool things and see her perspective on the world because her life experience is so vastly different than mine that I want to learn anything I can from her. And that's not going to happen at a networking event because right. the mechanics of it aren't right. It's not how human beings ever evolved to engage with each other. So speaking of getting to know people's lives, I would love you to tell the story about where you were at in your life when you started oh, wow. doing this. Because yes. I, I just think it's interesting. And I also think it's encouraging because I feel like in the last year with COVID, people have had a lot of time to reflect and mm -hmm. reflect on purpose and where they're at and what they want to do. And what I love about your story is uh, I believe that you had a pretty intense academic background, but weren't exactly where you wanted to be. And you completely shifted gears, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Your whole life. So, I, yeah. I, I want to be very clear about this. I, I went to NYU. I, I studied computer science, economics, and math. I have two of those degrees. I, to this day, have no idea which one I have. Uh, not a clue. Somebody told me a few years back when I spoke to someone at NYU and I've quickly forgotten. Um, but, you know, I'm really geeky. Like, and when I studied computer science, this was like 1998, there wasn't like dot-com billionaires yet or like, you know, iPhones. Tech was not cool at the time. It was just starting to like, Google had recently come out. It was People barely had email. Yeah, oh yeah. It was like a completely different world. I was essentially destined to never date is what I, my, if my degrees were a predictor of anything historically. Um, and so I graduated with this and, um, you know, I, I clearly knew I was not built for corporate America. I, uh, if it just wasn't like the way that I interacted with the world, but it also meant that like, I kept trying all these entrepreneurial things. Nothing seemed to ever work out. I was kind of barely making ends meet. I was wildly in debt because of school. And I was frankly chubby and, and not like healthy in any of my habits. And, uh, but I was kind of like obsessive about reading, even though I'm dyslexic and it's really hard for me. And I was obsessive about doing like all these personal development programs. And uh, to be completely honest, like life improved to some degree as I kept working on these things, but I was consistently beating myself up for setting the alarm for like 6 a.m. to go work out because that's what everybody tells me I'm supposed to do. And then hitting the snooze like 20 times, finally waking up at eight and feeling bad about it or feeling bad about like not dating the perfect person or any of these things. And I was in a seminar and the seminar leader said something wildly interesting to me, that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our life is the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them or have to with them. And I thought that was super interesting and being a geek, I was fortunate enough that research had just come out or came out just about then by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And they were researching the obesity epidemic. They were curious, does it spread from person to person like a cold or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? And what they found was startling. 
and literally shifted our perspective on interpersonal uh, relationships. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances go up by 45% to be obese. Your friends who don't even know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. Now that's pretty incredible, but it also turns out to be true, maybe not in the same numbers, but for smoking, voting habits, uh, marriage and divorce rates, and so on. And it turns out that human behavior is highly contagious, which shouldn't surprise you because if you say, oh my God, I just got a Peloton, you have to try it, then it increases your chance, the chances that your friends will suddenly start using those products, eat those meals, whatever it is. So I had a, a basic premise, which is instead of beating myself up for not working out, maybe I just need to surround myself with people who are really fitness oriented. And then it'll naturally be part of my social activities. So instead of going to the movies with my film buff friends, I would end up going for a run with my athlete friends. And so I became kind of obsessed with this idea of how do I curate the people around me? How do I build meaningful relationships with the people who I have the most profound levels of respect for? And not just so that I know them. It's not like this selfish experience of just about me, but that if I could introduce them to each other, their lives would also improve. And as everybody's life improves, mine would frankly just get even better. So yeah, to some degree, I'd get like the selfish benefits, but if I can connect all these people, it produces a community around me. And the nice thing about communities is that problems are solved much easier and joy is multiplied when you can celebrate together. So I kind of got really obsessed with how do I create extraordinary communities? I love it. And, and that's where it all began. I, I, I'm going to go to the group uh, for questions in just a minute because I want to include some people from this crew. So if you have a question, please let me know in the chat and I'll either read your question or call on some people. But I have a couple more myself. Uh, this is my um, confessional moment. Sometimes I feel guilty because when I attend your salons or go to your events, I meet all these incredible people, but I don't always have the capacity to follow up and nurture those relationships. Mm -hmm. Now that the devil on the shoulder is saying you're doing a bad job, but the mm -hmm. angel on this shoulder is saying that maybe it is just enough to make those connections, have the conversations and take away a bit of inspiration. How do you do it with being exposed to such a large number of new people and new relationships all the time? Um, so I think that there's a really interesting relationship between what's known, and I'll, I'll bring up three ideas if that's okay. When researchers looked at the predictors of, our, of human longevity, uh, after genetics, right, which we currently can't control, maybe in 20 years, CRISPR will be like a home product. We can all suddenly, I could be six foot four and way handsomer. Uh, but until that point, uh, the greatest predictors for our health and wellness are like one is environmental, like clean water and stuff like that. That's on the really low end. Then uh, we have getting your flu shot and exercise are about on par with each other. 
Uh, I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking like annual flu shot. Uh, and then uh, quitting drinking and quitting smoking have a pretty profound impact. The number two is strong social ties. So like having those friends you can really rely on. The ones that you can turn to if you're stuck and can't pick up the kids or need to borrow some money to cover rent or whatever. And then the number one is something called social integration. It means that you're part of a community, essentially, right? You have a sense of belonging. For human beings, the greatest punishment we can do or give somebody is either solitary confinement or exile. It's elimination from the group. Mm. I mean, besides capital punishment, but that's a completely different conversation. But like in, in terms of a torturous experience, it's saying that the community no longer accepts you. And if loneliness is really on par with smoking a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of its health implications. So I think the first question is, um, or the first thing is that people who are lonely, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They, they feel like they often deserve being lonely. And that's just not true. And so at the base level, I would say, forget the angel and the, the devil for a second. Do you feel like you have a few friends that you can really rely on? You don't have to have tons of them, but yeah. like, like your partner, all that, right? Like those close yeah. relationships that like when the day is crappy, you don't have to be like, oh, it's a blessing just to be alive. You could be like, oh my God, today freaking sucked. Uh, like, I just need to be honest and vent to somebody, right? Like, if you got a few of those, okay, great. Now the next thing is, do you have some social integration? Are you part of some kind of community, right? For some people that might be a church or a book club or something, just something to give them a sense of belonging. It could be that you just grew up in a massive family that has hundreds of people, whatever it is. But right, the, that kind of stuff is really important. Some people even get it from like Soul Cycle. There was this uh, paper done by Harvard School of Divinity or something like that about how like people now go to soul cycle rather than church. So yeah. that's great. The third group, which is kind of like social integration is loose social ties, which are those people that like, we don't really talk to. You met them maybe two years ago. If you message them on LinkedIn, they'd probably respond. And it turns out that those are the places of greatest opportunity in your life. And the reason is that your friends probably already all know each other. So if you're looking for a new job, talking to two of your friends doesn't really increase your access dramatically. Talking to the people you kind of know that are on the outskirts of your social circle suddenly have a huge impact. So I'm a big fan of making a lot of loose social ties. You might not be talking to those people all the time, but every so often I'll get a call and you know, like a parent will say, hey, I think my kid's doing drugs. Do you know somebody who can talk to me about that? And then I reach out to a loose social tie, but that's not something like day in, day out. I'm not involved in that world. It's, you know, I don't even have any kids. So, I, oh, sorry. Oh, I, I just was going to say that I love that you do make those connections. And I love that it also spun into a nonprofit arm for everything, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So we launched something called Influence for Good. And our mission is to just bring together the public around interesting ideas that can have a positive impact. So normally during COVID, it would be happening every couple of months. We host a few hundred people at a time and it's literally open to anybody who wants to come. Uh, we do like sometimes a basic background check just to make sure you're not like a total nutcase on Twitter, you know, espousing conspiracy theories. 
But other than that, it really is for the public benefit. We film it often. And our mission is to entertain and enlighten and to bring ideas forward that can affect the cultural conversation. So we did one on women who broke the mold or like these powerhouse female leaders. We did one on the uh, criminal justice system at every level. And we had some like pretty amazing people and that are real thought leaders in the industry speak. And so that's really been a, a privilege. We're, we're gonna dig in more on how people can connect with the work you're doing, how they can connect with the nonprofit and take questions. But I have one more thing I really want yes, to please. talk about. Uh, you mentioned something in one of your TED Talks that just made a gigantic light bulb go off over my head. I had never realized it before. And this is connected to your influencer dinners and why they work. Can you tell the story about the Ikea effect? Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, there's this kind of funny perception that if I want to win somebody over, I'm going to be really nice to them. Like, oh, Julie's awesome. I want to be her best friend. I'm going to take her for like a really nice dinner or invite her for a super nice meal. Or I'm going to like throw a party and we're going to give away like swag bags. Yeah. But in almost every case, what do you do with your swag bags? Give them to somebody else. Yeah, you re-gift them or toss them, which kind of shows us that gifting people doesn't actually really work. There is an exception if it's like an intimate gift. Like, I know you have a large family now. And so like, if I get you something for all the kids, then maybe that'll actually increase trust. But in general, the exact opposite works. And I know this is going to sound super weird, but it's called the Ikea effect. And it states that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. And for anybody who has children or a pet, you'll know this, you love your kids, but not necessarily other people's. And the reason is that you raised them. It's not despite having to change the diapers or put up with their craziness. It's because of it that you care more about them. And so our objective shouldn't be to win people over, at least not in my opinion. Instead, we wanna find ways for us to invest effort into each other so it increases our social ties and social bonds. And so at the dinner, the reason everybody cooks is because it gives them an activity to bond over while investing effort into one another. And so I'm a huge, I'll be honest, I actually think dinners in general, like quote unquote, the influencer dinners that people do with like all that kind of stuff are terrible because there's no activity. You're stuck there between two people you probably don't wanna to talk to. It's usually so loud you can't hear across, so none of the people across from you are any good. And did we just lose? Yeah, we lost her. Okay. Um, so you can't hear across from you because the tables are too wide and it's too noisy. And so I believe go on a hike. Go have a board games night. Go do an arts and crafts project, something that people can invest effort into. Even a workout, there's this really funny study that was shared with me that, you know, in, uh, in workouts, when you lean against the wall and, but you're, and you're like working out your legs and you have to like stay in that position, it becomes really painful after about like 10 seconds. It turns oh, yeah. out- Everybody's still here. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that we actually will, if like, we're not even talking to each other for just doing it next to each other we will like each other more after because we've had this kind of shared experience of pain together. So it kind of explains why 
the Marines, right, come in on day one. They come from different religions, cultures. They speak maybe even sometimes different dialects and uh, come from different families of wealth and all that kind of stuff. But after months of like suffering together and being yelled at and having to have a problem that's so big that they have to constantly all contribute, they would lay their lives down for one another. And that's because of this incredible investment of effort that they've all gone to. And so trust is just engineered. The, the light bulb that had gone off over my head with the Ikea effect is that's why corporate acquisitions are really hard, right? When you oh, yeah. merge two teams, um, you know, you just inherit a group of people, right? There hasn't been the building mm-hmm. of trust. They didn't discover you, thing, things like that. Uh, and and yeah. that made a lot of sense to me. It's interesting because trust, everybody expects vulnerability. Sorry, trust to precede vulnerability. I trust you, I'll be willing to risk something. It actually works the other way. It's called a vulnerability loop. And the way it works is that, let's say, Julie, I started working for you and we're in an office and you overhear me say, man, I do not know how I'm going to get all this work done. I've just put out a signal of vulnerability. If you ignore or make fun of what I said, trust will be reduced. But if you hear me acknowledge it and say something in response like, John, my first week here, I was totally overwhelmed too. What can you, what, what can I do to help you? Suddenly, what happens is that I've signaled vulnerability, you've acknowledged it, you've signaled vulnerability, and now both of us have demonstrated that we are safe at this higher level and trust is increased. So I would say, and that's probably why the IKEA effect works. So I would say that especially because there probably haven't been many vulnerability loops. There's no reason for a profound level of trust to exist. So people are going to be skeptical, skeptical, concerned, have culture clashes and so on. And rather than having developed that relationship over time. Right. Um, When uh, my computer froze, I lost the chat, but I'm going to go to some people because I think off memory, I I remember where the questions are. Right now, uh, Jillian, uh, you have a question. Go ahead and unmute and I'll let you just ask it. Okay. Um, Hi. Uh, My question was just around a comment you made in the beginning when you said that in your mind, someone has influence or is an influencer if they when want a, a an Oscar or an Olympic medal, it's an instant, yeah, they're influential. Um, do you see that narrative changing? Because it, it it feels as if there's a need or a want for people to have a different type of leader influence and, and the younger kids are looking to more non-traditional or non-championed in the, you know, the traditional pedigree sense for, for mm. a leader or for an influence. And I'm just, so, I'm just curious your opinion on that. I think you raise a really interesting question. The first thing I need to acknowledge and what the way you point that out is that in, in my work, we actually separate people into different levels of influence, right? So you have a global influencer like Oprah. She can't even walk down the street without being stopped, right? And that's very different. And she has different social pressures and objectives than somebody who's an industry level influencer, right? So like if you're the CMO of Apple or, and I keep using that just because of Julie, uh, the, then 
nobody knows what you look like. <laughs> it's, you're, but you have a lot of impact on the industry in the sense that if suddenly, and this actually happened with Apple, they said, we're changing our security policy. And now uh, we're really, our main focus is protecting our consumer's privacy. And as a byproduct, that had a huge impact on the entire telecommunications industry and uh, social media, right? Like Facebook did their ad and all that kind of stuff. Then they're like community level influencers. So think like a reverend, a martial arts master, right? They're, they have a smaller community that really listens to them and cares about their thoughts. And then we have our personal influencers. I'm friends with Julie. When we talk, she has an impact on me and vice versa. So the question is, do they automatically have influence when they win their award, like an Oscar? We, as a society, tend to give them the stage when they do. There are plenty of awards nobody pays attention to. But if you're an architect and you win the Fisker Award, within the industry, people might have an opinion on it. But you definitely, like when you speak, people will then listen to some degree. As far as the change into who we desire to mimic or idolize, that has changed dramatically over the past 20 years, right? My nephew, when I was growing up, I would have never been like, I want to be a YouTuber, <laughs> right? But if people would say things like, I want to be like, I don't know, Tom Cruise or something, I don't, I don't, or Jordan. Now people are saying, oh, I want to build weird things and make videos of them exploding on YouTube. And so, yeah, the what we idolize probably changes and what we value. And people's influence may reduce over time. You could probably say Tom Cruise's influence is probably reduced as a byproduct of the democratization of media. But, uh, but the mechanics are the same. It's, have you connected with this person in some way? Do you trust them? And is there a sense of belonging or community? And that's why Instagram doesn't really produce, uh, is, doesn't produce community because if I comment on Taylor Swift's photo, <laughs> I have no feeling of relatedness to her, right? There's no experience of belonging. Whereas like a Facebook moms group can have a huge sense of community where, and as a byproduct, those women have an incredible impact on one another. And then there's the person that's most trusted maybe within the group that has the highest level of influence, right? Or that's connected to the most number of moms that has the most influence. But all of that kind of, you know, becomes more relative. Did, did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. I love that. Yeah, values change and your influences matter. Mm -hmm. it, influence is really like a point in time thing. It's not like the person that influenced me when I was six is not the person that influenced me when I was 36. And because connections change, trust changes, and so does belonging. Kat has a question, uh, and I know she uh, can't say it herself. She's got some other things going on at her place. Uh, mm -hmm. You talked about introducing friends to other friends. What's the most surprising combination of people you've introduced who've really hit it off? And have you introduced two people who ended up not liking each other? And what did you learn from that? Wow. So I've introduced so many people that it's hard for me to know what my favorite was. 
But there was an introduction that stands out as the most amusing to me. And that is a British pop artist by the name of Neon Hitch. Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, I sat her down at the influencers dinner with Nobel laureate Dan Kahneman. I think he was probably like 80 something at the time. This is a kind of slimmer, frail, bald, old Israeli Jewish guy uh, who won the Nobel prize for behavioral economics. And uh, she is a wildly pink, at the time, pink haired uh, pop artist with vibrant red lipstick. And I have a photo of them. I think she's like holding his hand and giving him a kiss on his bald head. <laughs> and, and in that moment, all I could think is like, I've achieved it. This is it. There's like no pairing that will be weirder that or like more unexpected because those two people will never find themselves at another event together ever, hands down. Uh, I mean, I've gotten to like introduce Laurie Anderson to Bill Nye the Science Guy or, you know, Trevor Noah to Bill T. Jones, but like those people might find their way to each other. It's just, that one was like super, super weird. Um, I think that uh, the biggest lesson I've learned about introducing people is to just not put them in the same room, but rather give them an activity because we were never designed to, um, to just meet strangers. We were designed to do things together that aid in our survival, essentially. So if that's even just, if I tell you, go sit in a room with somebody, that's super awkward. It feels like an interview. If I say, hey, can you two move this table? Then suddenly it functions as a, a social catalyst. You don't have to talk if you don't want to, but if you do have something to say, you at least have a common objective that's driving you. And so I think the biggest lesson I learned was that. And there's a man I got to host at one of my digital salons. I've not yet met him in person. Uh, and man, if I could bottle what he does, that'd be incredible. His name is Daryl Davis. He's a, a boogie and a country and, and rock musician. Uh, and when he was a child, uh, he, his parents were in the foreign service. He traveled all over the world and eventually finally got to at a young age, I think he was like eight or something, uh, come to the US and join the Cub Scouts. And as he was walking down the street in this fresh best uniform with the other scouts during a parade, uh, people started throwing rocks at him. And uh, all the scoutmasters kind of protected him and he came home and, uh, and all he could think was like, why didn't people like the scouts? And then he realized that it was him because he was the only one being protected. And his parents had to explain to him what racism was. And he didn't believe it existed because he thought they were lying about it because he had known people of every shade imaginable while you know, growing up. And, uh, but then a few months later, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and he saw the rioting and realized this is a real thing. But he was left with the question of why would somebody hate him if they didn't even know him? And so uh, eventually what happened was he was touring with a country band and he got off stage. He was the only black man in the entire bar, including the band. And uh, some guy put his arm around him and said, wow, I've never heard a black man play like Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, 
he was super confused. He's like, I know Jerry Lee. He learned his style from, um, from people who are black. And he's, he thought the guy assumed, probably assumed he was kidding. He's like, come join me for a drink. And he sat down and uh, the guy says, sitting across from him says, this is the first time I've ever had a drink with a black man. And he's like, how is that even possible? You know, that sounds ridiculous. You know, and, uh, and his friend nudges him, uh, the, the guy who made the comment. And he said, that's because I'm a member of the clan. And Daryl starts laughing, thinking that this guy's like totally just has to be kidding. And the guy pulls out the car, his card and hands it to Daryl and shows it to him. And Daryl's like, you know, spooked. And uh, the man said, I'd, I'd like to actually see you perform again. When you're in town, will you, uh, you get in touch with me? And so every few months he would call him up. The guy would show up with other Klansmen and Klanswomen. They were all curious to see this black man who could play like Jerry Lee and eventually had this absolutely insane idea. And this kind of brings me to my point. His idea was maybe you could finally have an answer to the question of why, how people could hate him if they didn't even know him. And he requested to meet the most senior person in Maryland in the Klan for an interview. And the man agreed. He never lied about the fact that he was black. Uh, and uh, they sat, when he arrived, uh, it was at a hotel that the man was with like a, what's called a Grand Nighthawk. Uh, it's like the, his private bodyguard. And they sit down and uh, the man, they actually shook his hand. He was super surprised. And they spoke for three hours. And every so often they'd hear like a, a small little sound. Um, and he offered them some like drinks and cold sodas and stuff like that. And after about a couple of hours, there was a sudden big sound. And Daryl thought that they were about to attack him. And they thought Daryl was going to attack them. And it like, they literally grabbed each other. And then they realized that the sound was the ice melting and the cans falling in the ice bucket. And they almost killed each other in the process. Uh, and they just started laughing uncontrollably. And Daryl over the next years met with over 200 uh, Klansmen or uh, white supremacists and uh, hundreds ended up uh, giving, leaving white supremacy and give, I think 60 some odd gave them their robes, uh, including there was one man that he would meet with over and over again. He was, uh, uh, he was arrested for trying to bomb a synagogue. And then when he was left, let out for that from prison, he was, what was it? Oh, he tried to assault two black men with a shotgun and almost killed them. And uh, after meeting after meeting, uh, the man began to realize that, you know, maybe his views on the world weren't right. And uh, Daryl and him ended up becoming best friends. And not only did he give him his robes, but he gave him his old work uniform. And he was a police officer in the Baltimore PD. Oh, what a... <laughs> I mean, an inspiring and stressful story at the same yeah. time. <laughs> so I, I know this is a bit of a long and roundabout uh, way to say this, but uh, Daryl is like beyond brave and frankly crazy, right? To do all this. But there's this wild element about human beings that, and this is what Daryl realized is that it's not because people didn't understand him that they hated him. Uh, 
sorry, it's not that they hated him and they didn't understand him. It's because they didn't understand or know him that they hated him. Meaning that when we're not exposed to something, when we don't, when we can't connect, that's when the problems really form. And my general view on all of these things is that everything really starts with an invitation. That my best shot and my shortest path to accomplishing anything I care about begins with an invitation to another human being. And whether that's to get people out of the clan or to help people who are addicts, right? To find a place and support, or it's with making new friends or succeeding in my business. And uh, I mean, Daryl's freaking amazing, but um, fundamentally we are now facing the greatest loneliness epidemic in US history. In 1985, the average American had three friends. By 2004, before social media was even around, we were down to two friends. And that's only become more of a problem in recent years um, as we are isolated due to COVID or even just, you know, find more reasons to move for, to new jobs and lose our social circles. And so um, the biggest thing I can encourage anybody to do is call somebody up. <laughs> invite them to things. I think that's important. And one final question that I think will help a lot of people. Jared had asked, you mentioned in the beginning that you know you dealt with some celebrities that had huge social anxiety, right? Yeah. And then on the other end of it, if people are facing loneliness or low self-esteem, what advice do you have for people who feel like they're either comparing themselves to others or that they just don't belong. Hmm. Okay, so the, the celebrities and, low, like, and the social anxiety stuff, uh, that I think really comes back to vulnerability uh, loops, right? This idea that we have to be willing to be the first ones to put ourselves out there and in order to create a safe space and also understand that none of us, I think, I mean, I'm not, maybe some of you are, are medical professionals. I don't, frankly, like if it's an extreme case, I, I'm not trained to deal with that. And that's not on me if I can't pull it off. There's always something we can learn from the experience, but feeling bad because somebody doesn't want to connect with us when they are literally staying locked at home because they're anxious, like that's not on you. That's, and you, you like, you can't take that on yourself. Uh, and then there was a second question you asked. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, you're talking about the dinner I went to, right? There were tech bosses in the games, like Olympians and stuff. What if people are facing the loneliness or low self-esteem and they don't feel worthy or they don't belong, right? Like what advice do you have to them? I, in my heart of hearts, have this fundamental belief that everybody matters, right? Yeah. But how do you get other people to believe that? I think the issue is that I'm not sure they will. I, I just, it's once somebody feels like they're deserving of being alone, uh, we probably need what's called a, a flywheel effect. There's this kind of funny characteristic of human beings that when we have a win, it actually makes us more likely to have another win. Mm -hmm. And so we want to stack it small, right? And not, and keep going from there as opposed to, you need to come to a party. Okay, let's start off with 
let's get you outside and to change out of those sweatpants, right? Let's just like take a walk around the block. Great. Let's take another walk around the block and let's have our friend Steve join us, right? Let's build up that muscle because right now the muscle is so atrophied and weak that it, it trying to do like, oh, inviting somebody to a party, that's totally overwhelming. They're going to feel isolated. You can be in a massive group and feel totally isolated. So I recommend going with like a flywheel or stacking approach where we start off slow because it's their, their social muscle is so weak at that stage that it needs to be built up a little before it could handle some real weight. Yeah, that's great advice. There's so much good stuff here. I could talk to you all day. I have so many more questions for you, but uh, I know that um, more than anything, I'm really excited about your book. You're invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. What's the date? May 11th, 2021. Good date. So pre-order it. Make my Jewish mother proud of me when I hit the New York Times list. All right. I already did. And I'm going to get some for some friends. And uh, anything you. else you want people to know how to engage with you? Uh, uh, oh, I'm on every talk? social media platform from Instagram to Clubhouse as John Levy TLB. J-O-N-L-E-V-Y. T like Thomas. L like Lion. B like Boy. John Levy TLB. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. And thanks to everybody who joined the chat today. What a group. We've got people from London to Massachusetts, a lot of California love, Indiana. Really great to see everybody. And thanks so much for being a part of the Idea Fountain community. I appreciate you all. Julie, thanks for having me on. Okay, right, I can run. Bye. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Idea Fountain. John Levy's new book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence is out on May 11th. Make sure to pick it up. And we now have four seasons of The Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations available on all podcasting platforms. If you really want to earn some good karma, go ahead and leave a podcast review. I really love sharing ideas, connections, and stories with everybody listening. Keep in touch via juliepilot.co, J-U-L-I-E-P-I-L-A-T.co or Instagram at the Idea Fountain and watch for news on how you could join the next live taping. Have a great week.